Well, welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this evening we are uh, considering our citizenship in the kingdom and learn, seeking to learn from national Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, last week we looked at uh, the life of the patriarchs, particularly Adam or Abraham, but also Isaac a little bit, uh, as we considered uh, what we could learn from them as kingdom pilgrims on this earth. And so uh, we talked about the idea that there are two kingdoms, uh, one king. Right? There's the kingdom of heaven, there's the common kingdom of this earth, both ruled by Christ as their king. But here on earth, amongst the common kingdom, governed via the Noahic covenant, we have civil governments of this world. And so then we had the, the call of Abraham as a particular people, him and his family, called out from among the nations uh, and given some particular uh, things. They were citizens of both uh, kingdoms, but they were also a special people called by God who were given particular uh, aspects of their worship in relation to the covenant that God established with them. They were promised redemption and promised permanency as the people of God. And so we looked at how the New Testament, New Covenant believers enjoy those same things and so what we could learn from them. So we've said before that the Noahic covenant governs the common kingdom, the new covenant governs the kingdom of heaven. And so last week we looked at that covenant of promise made with Abraham. So this evening I want us to consider the Mosaic covenant made with national Israel. And so this gets a little trickier. We're actually looking at a nation, a geopolitical ethnic nation that existed with a government and uh, was one of the lesser kingdoms of this earth that exist in the common kingdom, and yet at the same time, they were a particular people called out in the same way that Abraham had been uh, and governed by a special covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And again, uh, the Mosaic covenant didn't govern, it wasn't common to all men. The Noahic covenant is common to all men. It governs all men here on earth. The Mosaic covenant didn't. It governed a particular people in a particular place. And so uh, there's some special things that we need to consider. And so as we look at God's people in that time and place as a geopolitical nation, uh, we have to ask ourselves some questions. God, under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, with this people established as a nation, gave them laws on how they were to govern themselves as a nation here on earth. And so we have to ask, what is our relationship to the laws given to the people of Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. What is the relationship of those laws to governments, civil governments in the common kingdom today? Is there a relationship? And if so, what is it? What does it look like? So we have to ask those questions and it gets a little tricky because there is a movement, particularly in reformed circles, uh, that began probably long before this, but it was given this name in the 1970s. This movement is known as theonomy. Now, when we consider this, some people that we might want to point at and say, well, that guy is a theonomist, would say, well, aren't we all? Because theonomy uh, is comprised of two words, theos, or theos, meaning God, and nomos, meaning law. So all Christians would say the law of God is important. The law of God applies. Uh, 
so in some sense, all Christians are theonomists, but there is a particular movement in the 1970s uh, under a couple of men. Uh, you may have heard some of these names. R.J. Rushdoony, Greg Bonson, and Gary North would have been three of the primary uh, people in the 1970s that were teaching this uh, idea of theonomy. And so what is theonomy? Well, it is a, a hypothetical, and I say that because it doesn't exist in reality. It's a, it's a theory of a Christian form of civil government, right? So it's the idea that the civil government, say, of the United States would be a Christian government in which the society governed by that government, that civil government, would be ruled by divine law. And so theonomists would hold that particularly the laws given to ethnic Israel under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant uh, should be observed by modern civil societies uh, in one form or another. It's a, it's a spectrum. Some theonomists would say exactly the way they were given in the covenant. Others would say with some modification. Um, there is a movement afoot today that has, you know, in the 1970s, this was largely confined to Orthodox uh, Reformed Presbyterian circles. Uh, in our day, it has found its way into Reformed Baptist circles, unfortunately. Um, there is still a movement within uh, Presbyterian circles, and one of the lead guys in that would be a pastor out in Idaho by the name of Doug Wilson. Uh, and, but there have been Reformed Baptists downstream of him who have learned from him particularly, uh, and you may be familiar with these names, Jeff White, I mean James White and Jeff Durbin are two that have picked up on some of Doug Wilson's ideas. Uh, and they don't, if you ask them if they're a theonomist, they will qualify it. And they will call themselves general equity theonomists. And they are using a term that comes out of the confession. And so we're going to look at that tonight and examine uh, what they're doing and whether or not um, what they're doing is actually what the confession is talking about. So here's a, a quote from Brandon Adams. He's a Reformed Baptist uh, elder and has done a lot of writing on this subject. And he's, he de defines this modern movement of theonomy in this way. He says, theonomy is the pre presumption that the old covenant judicial laws given to Israel have not been abrogated. Therefore, all civil governments are morally obligated to enforce them, including, in some cases, the specific penalties. And furthermore, that all civil governments must refrain from coercion in areas where Scripture has not prescribed their intervention. So, in other words, if Scripture hasn't said in the Mosaic Covenant that, for instance, the government could enact gun control laws, because they didn't have guns back then. Well, it wasn't in the scripture, so the government today has no authority to enact those sorts of laws. Taken to its logical conclusion, that's kind of ridiculous because they didn't have cars back then either. So does that mean the government has no jurisdiction to uh, govern how we drive automobiles on the road? Obviously, they do, because if they don't, we could end up with people driving on the wrong side of the road and having collisions and people's lives are in danger. So uh, it becomes a moral issue when we're putting people's lives at risk that way. Uh, this is sometimes known as the regulative principle of the state. So you may have heard the regulative principle of worship applied to the church. So they're kind of applying the same idea to civil government. So there are some problems with theonomy. 
uh, and there are some identifying marks. Not all of these things are necessarily problems. Uh, one of them would be their understanding of general equity, which is what we're going to discuss tonight. A second one would be that while not all post-millennialists are theonomists, I'm pretty certain, to the best of my knowledge, all theonomists are post-millennialists. I've not run across one that isn't. Uh, so that's kind of an identifying mark. Uh, dominionism, so you'll hear them talking about the mandate given to Adam in the garden uh, to take dominion over the earth. And if you'll remember when we talked about the Noahic covenant, that was one of the uh, things about the Noahic covenant that was modified as the Noahic covenant repeated much of the mandate given to Adam, but it left out that idea of taking dominion. And instead, God put the fear of man into the animals. But the theonomists will talk a lot about dominion, about man taking dominion, about particularly Christians taking dominion over creation and over civil society. Uh, you'll hear them talk about Christian reconstructionism, which we don't have time to go into tonight. You'll also see them talking about, um, I don't know if they use this term or not, but you will see them. Migration is the word I have for it. Um, they will congregate and establish sort of Christian enclaves. So Doug Wilson is out in Moscow, Idaho, and they have done this out there. They are attracting people to them. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of a mark of their, their idea of how Christians are to interact in our modern society has led them to the establishment of this kind of Christian enclave where they've established schools and universities and, and all this and are kind of trying to start locally and, and influence the local government. Not a bad thing. Um, I just think that they've got some mixed up ideas. Um, but those are kind of some marks of the modern theonomists. Here are some of the problems with theonomy. The first thing is, is they misunderstand the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant. Primarily, this grows out of the Presbyterian understanding of the covenants. They look at the Old Covenant, starting with the covenant of Abraham, but then particularly uh, the Mosaic Covenant, and they see, rightly so, that in those covenants which God made with man, there is grace in those covenants. That's absolutely correct. Every covenant that God makes with man has some component of grace to it. But they mistake the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise. They mistake the promises made there um, pointing towards the new covenant uh, as being actually the establishment of the new covenant. And so the Presbyterian view of covenant theology would say the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is, the, the, not the New Covenant, but they would say the Covenant of Grace. The New Covenant in the New Testament and Christ's blood is the Covenant of Grace. They're all the same covenant, just different outward administrations of that same covenant. Because of that view of the covenants, it's then easy to import stuff out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant because they're the same covenant in their view. So guys like James White, who is a Reformed Baptist and would say he holds to the 1689, but his understanding of covenant theology is identical to the Presbyterian. So it kind of makes him susceptible to this Presbyterian view that results in theonomy. Uh, whereas I would hold to an understanding of covenants that is typically called 1689 federalism that sees the promise of the new covenant in the Abrahamic covenant, but a distinction between the two. They're not both the covenant of grace. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. Abrahamic covenant promises the covenant of grace. We don't have 
time to get into covenant theology tonight. But uh, a second problem with theonomy is it tends to downplay or dismiss the idea of moral law predating the Mosaic Covenant. So this is something we've talked a little bit about previously, the idea that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, uh, for instance, thou shall not kill, thou shall not murder, uh, that moral law is written on man's heart, right? Adam knew it was wrong. Cain knew it was wrong when he killed his brother. That law is written on man's heart. It predates the Mosaic law. Uh, Theonomists tend to downplay or dismiss that idea altogether. Uh, They confuse the distinction between moral or natural law and positive law. So moral law, that law that is written on our hearts because we are image bearers of God. Right? The moral law, the Ten Commandments, reflects the nature of God. And because we are made in his image, that moral law is written on our hearts. Positive law, though, is law that we only get from special revelation, from God saying, do this and live, do that and die. That's positive law uh, that is given in a covenantal context. So they tend to confuse that distinction between the two. Moral law rooted in the nature and character of God, his image in man, sometimes called natural law. So you'll see some of these theonomists arguing against the idea of natural law. I think most of them misunderstand what we mean when we use the term natural law. Um, And dismissing the distinction between that and positive law, which is rooted in special revelation. So we could think about it this way. The The moral law, the natural law, part of the Ten Commandments, thou shall not steal. This is written on our hearts. We know it's wrong to steal. Even non-believers, unless they're mentally ill in some way, they have some idea that it's wrong to steal. But a positive law given to Adam in the garden was don't eat the fruit of that tree. If you eat the fruit of that tree, you're stealing because it's off limits. You're not supposed to eat it. right? So, but Adam wouldn't have known that tree was off limits unless God had told him that tree was off limits. Another idea would be, don't, thou shall not murder, right? Written on our hearts, Cain knew better. But then when we get to the Mosaic covenant and the judicial laws that govern their life in the land and Moses tells them, when you build your house, you have to build a parapet around the roof so that no one falls off and dies. That's rooted in the moral law, thou shall not kill. We have to respect the lives of others but they wouldn't have known particularly, just instinctively. I mean, maybe we would. Put some protections up so somebody doesn't die. But that's a specific positive law that was given as part of that covenant. The other thing that theonomy does is it forgets or overlooks that the judicial laws of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant governed their life in the land of Canaan particularly. And it specifically says this, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4, verse 14. As God is giving uh, the law to the people through Moses, it says, And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. So the law that was given to Moses for the people was given to govern their life 
in the land. And so there are specific uh, ways in which we see that working itself out in the life of ancient Israel. They were given specific instructions of how they were to relate to the people who lived in the land of Canaan. That was not how they were to relate to people who lived outside the land of Canaan. So that law that was given them to uh, kill the inhabitants of Canaan, they weren't just to randomly kill the inhabitants of all the world, only specifically these people in the land. Uh, We see throughout the Old Testament that God judges the nations. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in the Minor Prophets and other places. God judges the nations. He holds them accountable. The nations of this world are, are accountable to God as the king of the common kingdom. But he judges them for some specific things. He judges them for uh, harsh injustice. He judges them uh, for uh, various uh, things which they should know because of the common or moral natural law written on their hearts. But he does not judge the nations for their idolatry. He judges Israel for their idolatry. And he actually uses idolatrous foreign nations to do that. So God doesn't hold all the nations of the world in the Old Testament accountable to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. They are for life in the land of Canaan. And so theonomists tend to overlook that and want to apply them outside uh, the, the life of Israel in the land. So here's a quote from Pastor Tom Hicks, another Reformed Baptist uh, who has some, a good bit of writing on this issue, and he says this, Theonomy has a view of the gospel and of the church's mission that goes beyond preaching Christ and him crucified and risen for the conversion of sinners and the building up of churches. It claims that for the church to be faithful, she must also work to implement the Old Testament judicial law at every level of society as part of society's transformation into the kingdom of God on earth before Christ returns. This means the church has not fully accomplished its mission by preaching the Lord Jesus, his gospel, to every tribe and tongue for the conversion of souls and the building up of churches. Rather, the church must also work for transforming the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. It does this by teaching the nations God's law and working to implement it. Now, don't mishear what he's saying. Tom Hicks... Brandon Adams, who I quoted earlier, these guys have done a lot of writing about theonomy. Neither of them would say that the nations of the world enacting just laws on the basis of God's word would be a bad thing. They would both say that would be a good thing. But what they are saying is that when theonomists say this is the mission of the church to see that that happens, that now we're, we're confusing what the church's mission in the world really is, and this becomes a problem. So... We need to cover a couple of things here before we get to general equity, and that is, first, we need to start with the law of God itself. So I'm going to turn to our confession, which has a whole chapter on the law of God, chapter 19, and I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs out of here because we need to get a couple of distinctions clear in our mind. So here's chapter 19 of the law of God, paragraph 1. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So here we have natural law written on his heart, a positive law, don't eat from that tree, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience 
promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. So there we have the natural law written on Adam's heart. Paragraph 2. The same law, that law written on Adam's heart, that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables, the first four containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. So the ten commandments. Now I'm going to read the first couple of words of paragraph three. Besides this law, commonly called moral, I'll stop there. So what the confession is saying is the ten commandments were written on Adam's heart at creation, continued on the hearts of men after the fall, though the image of God is marred and defaced at that point, but it's still there. That is the moral law, the Ten Commandments, later given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Paragraph 3 continues, Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. So the confession is saying there were two different kinds of law given to Israel, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and ceremonial law, and it calls them uh, typical ordinances. And what they're saying is they're referring to the laws of the tabernacle and the temple, the laws of sacrifice and offering, and these typified Christ, right? The lamb that they offered was a type. Christ is the antitype. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of the lamb shed for atonement, Christ's blood shed for our atonement on the cross. So that ceremonial law is done. Now that Christ has made the final sacrifice, we're no longer bound by that law. It's been abrogated, fulfilled by Christ. We don't have to offer sacrifices. In fact, if we tried to offer animal sacrifices, that would be offensive to God because God has offered Christ once for all at the end of age, Hebrews, Hebrews tells us. So we have those two laws. The ceremonial law has been taken away. Paragraph 4 To them also he gave sundry judicial laws. So now we have judicial laws, those laws which governed their societal life together as a nation in the land of Canaan. These laws, it says, expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So the judicial laws of the nation of Israel expired with the state of that people, not obliging any now. So the United States of America is not obliged to enact the Deuteronomic law concerning parapets on rooftops. Do we have laws about deck railings? Yes, we do, and we should to preserve life. But we don't have to enact a law about parapets on rooftops. We're not hanging out on our roofs the way they were in ancient Israel. So We're not bound by these exact things. Another aspect of this would be the punishments incurred for violating these laws. As we will see tonight as we get into Deuteronomy, a lot of the punishment is death, death, death. We're not bound to enact the death penalty for all of these things. We're free to enact different penalties uh, under the law as a nation. 
But it ends by saying their general equity only being of moral use. So then we have to deal with the idea of what is general equity, which we'll get to in a minute. So we've seen a threefold division of the law, moral law, ceremonial law, and judicial law. We already said the moral law is the natural law written on our hearts. The distinction then is the ceremonial law and the judicial law are positive laws that we would only have by special revelation. These positive laws are applications of the moral law under specific covenantal circumstances. So the moral law, thou shalt not kill, gets applied to the life of Israel in the land by building parapets around their rooftops to keep their neighbor from falling off when they're over at a dinner party, right? Um, so we have moral law, we have positive law, we have this threefold division of the law. The other thing that we need to understand is that Israel as a nation in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law was a holy nation. They were a lesser nation of the common kingdom, but they weren't like the other lesser nations of the common kingdom, right? Their nation was not meant to govern the entire world. It was meant to govern the land of Canaan. So it wasn't, couldn't equate it to the common kingdom, but you also can't equate it to the kingdom of God either. It was a, I think it typified the kingdom of God, but it was a kingdom of this world. And so we can see a couple of things uh, here. I'm going to turn to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33, we'll look at verses 50 through 56. Numbers 33, beginning in verse 50. Now the Lord spoke to Moses on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it. For I have given you the land to possess, and you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance." There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So they're to conquer the land of Canaan. They're not to conquer the whole world. Right? They're to conquer a specific land, uh, but they are to treat this land differently. They're to cleanse it of the Canaanites who have been there. Well, then if we look at Exodus as God was preparing to give them the law. Uh, Moses is, they're at Mount Sinai here. Moses is going to go receive the law from God's hands. In Exodus verse, chapter 19 uh, and verses 5 and 6, it says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So the, the nation of Israel was different than the rest of the nations of the world. It was a holy nation, separate from, called out from, and distinct from, the rest of the nations on the planet. 
So over in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 16 through 19. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, just as he promised you, that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made, in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. So Israel was distinct from the other nations. They were not just another lesser nation of the common kingdom. They were a holy nation set out apart and called by God. So when we turn to the New Testament in 1 Peter, writing to the church, Peter says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. There was a holy nation under the old covenant, which was Israel. There is a holy nation under the new covenant, which is the church. So we are governed by a particular covenant, the new covenant. It does not govern all men commonly. It governs the church, the holy nation of God. All men commonly are governed by the Noahic covenant. So we can see that both Israel and the Old Testament, the church and the New Testament are distinct from the rest of the world, held to a higher standard of justice and morality, given a particular culture of worship, and they are to be an example and a beacon to the rest of the world. Right? We are the light of the world, called to be such. So, what does this confession mean then when it says that these judicial laws given to Israel in the Old Testament says that their general equity is of moral use? Well, in 1660, Johannes Wolobius, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, he, he wrote this. He says, What was of private right and command for the Jewish commonwealth in particular? do no more bind us than the municipal laws of other commonwealths. So his point is, the judicial law given to Israel shouldn't bind us as the United... He's saying us, he means England at the time. Shouldn't bind England any more than the judicial laws of Germany should have bound England. We could think for ourselves uh, here in the United States. We have our own set of judicial laws by which we are governed. We are not governed by the judicial laws of England. They drive on the left side of the road. We drive on the right side of the road. If we all went to England and said, well, I'm American, so I'm going to abide by the laws of America even though I'm in England and drove on the right side of the road, we'd have an issue because we'd be coming head on towards other traffic. If they came over here and said, we're not going to abide by the laws of the United States because we're English, and they drove on the left side of the road, there would be an issue. So the laws of England don't govern the borders of the United States. The laws of the United States don't govern the, what's within the borders of England. The laws given to Israel in the Old Testament do not obligate us any more than the municipal laws of other commonwealths. So... Here's another where, here is my issue with where theonomy, I believe, goes 
incredibly wrong with this idea of general equity. And this is, this is it. What they don't recognize or haven't thought about or t have chosen to ignore, I don't know what the situation is. Anytime the New Testament applies old covenant judicial laws, it applies them to the church. It never applies them to Rome or the civil governments of the day. It applies them to the church. Israel was a holy nation. The church is a holy nation. So they take the old covenant judicial laws and apply them to the church by means of what we call general equity. So in the confession, when it says that those laws, uh, that they have a general equity that is of moral use, it gives us a footnote, uh, a scripture reference. The scripture reference that it gives us is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So if we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what we're going to see is the application of an old covenant judicial law to the church. Now I think the confession just gives us a reference to one verse, but we're going to read a slightly larger section. It references verses 8 through 10, but we're going to read verses 3 through 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. Paul is speaking of his apostleship and his uh, ministry as an apostle. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So he's arguing that as apostles, Paul, Barnabas, out missionary work, ministering to the churches, that they should have the right to take a wife with them and, and a reasonable expectation of supporting their family, if they do so, by the work of the ministry that they're doing. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? So Paul's saying, listen, I'm not making this up. The law says this. Now he's going back to the Old Covenant judicial law given to Israel in the land of Canaan. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, it is... Is it a great thing if we reap our material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying that um, Paul and Barnabas have a right. They have chosen not to exercise it. They have supported themselves financially by their tent making, but they had a right to accept, expect reasonable support from the churches that they were ministering to. He says this was written in the law of the Old Covenant. Well, the law of the Old Covenant that he's referring to back in Deuteronomy, and he, just, he quotes the one verse, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 14, and it comes in the midst of a bunch of judicial laws. Sorry, Deuteronomy 25, 4. And it comes in the midst of a bunch of judicial laws uh, regarding other things, disputes between neighbors, 
uh, marriage duties of the, of the surviving brother, what we call a, a Leverite marriage. And in the midst of this, we have this one random law, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And Paul applies this to him and Timothy, or to him and Barnabas. Now we see he also writes this same thing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And, and here he's quoting Jesus, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So he says, missionaries, elders in the church, have a, a expectation that the church would support them financially. And that's based on a law about oxen in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. So what is, how is he getting there? How is he doing this? Well, what he's doing is he's applying the general equity of this law about oxen. The law about oxen, it's gen, remember, we said the judicial laws are a positive law that is an application of the moral law to a specific situation in a covenantal circumstance. So what moral law is being applied by saying don't muzzle the oxen that treads out the grain? It's thou shalt not steal from Exodus 20:15, And Paul's application of that to missionaries and, and gospel ministers is don't make them work and don't pay them. Don't make your oxen work and don't feed it. Don't hire an employee and don't pay him. That's stealing from him. So this is the general equity of this law. Another one that we might look at that is a little trickier is in Deuteronomy, and this is one that you may see thrown at you occasionally by non-Christians. If we turn to Deuteronomy 22, non-Christians like to point at some of these random judicial laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and go, oh, you you, you want to believe the Bible and think that that it's true, well, what about this? And this is one of those cases. If in, begin, chapter 22, beginning in verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet, these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. They shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him. And they shall fine him 100 shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. But... If the thing is true and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. So here we have judicial laws governing Israel's life as a nation in the land of Canaan, particularly regarding some sexual ethics, right? And we can see that there are judgments to be made. Uh, There is sin that is committed or crime that is committed, a judgment that is made, and a punishment is executed, which is death by stoning in this case. 
And both of these laws say here at the end in verse 21 and in verse 22, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, if we turn over again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this time, and you'll be familiar with this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and they have a problem with some sexual immorality in the church. And so Paul says, beginning in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You can see the sin that is being committed of a sexual nature, a judgment rendered, and a punishment uh, executed. But Paul continues, verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside. Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting the sexual ethic laws in Deuteronomy. They're telling put the evil out of the people by stoning them. You put them to death. You purge the evil from among you. He's applying that general equity of that law here to the church in Corinth. The old covenant judicial law of sexual immorality is applied to the new covenant holy nation, which is the church. It does not apply outside the church. He explicitly says that. Not telling you to separate yourselves. You'd have to go out of the world in order to do that. I'm not telling you to judge those who are outside. That's God's work. You're to judge those who claim the name of Christ, who are members of the church, and then behave in this sexually immoral way. There is no sanction for the church to try and enforce this law in the civil realm. We enforce it within the church. There's no indication here that Paul is even arguing that the Christians should try and lobby to get the civil government to enforce it. It's taken care of in the church. The death penalty was applied because of the violation of the law in the old covenant, but here in the new covenant, what happens? Well, as I discussed in my sermon Sunday, if you were here, to death is to be cut off. To cut off from the life of God is to be dead spiritually. Uh, to be cut off from the nation of Israel was to be stoned or killed in some way. Well, here, what happens? This man is cut off from the fellowship of the church. They don't kill him physically, but they put him out of fellowship. 
They excommunicate him. He's cut off from the life of the church. What's the whole purpose of this? Well, in the old covenant law, these laws were given to Israel in Deuteronomy in order to preserve the purity of the holy nation that God had established under that covenant. Why is it enforced here in the church? Well, for the same reason, to preserve the purity of the holy nation of the new covenant, which is the church. But there's a big difference between the old covenant law and the new covenant, the general equity of it as applied in the church. In the old covenant, the person was stoned to death. In the new covenant, the general equity, the person isn't stoned, they're cut off from the fellowship of the church, but there is space made for redemption if they repent. And so if you turn over to 2 Corinthians 2, you can read about how this person has repented and Paul wants them welcomed back into fellowship at that point. So the enforcement of the law in the new covenant had a redemptive purpose that was different from that under the old covenant. So the point of this is the general equity of the old covenant judicial laws uh, is to be worked out by looking and going, how does this law apply, how is it an application of the moral law of God to the people of God in a specific covenantal circumstance? And so how can we work backwards to that moral law and then work back forward to the particular covenantal circumstances in which we find ourselves as the church and then apply the general equity of that law to our life together as a church? And so in that way, we can learn from national Israel how to apply those laws in our life together as a covenant people, distinct from the world, holy, but still living our lives in this world uh, as citizens of both the kingdom of heaven and the common kingdom, uh, but not simply trying to cut and paste laws out of Deuteronomy uh, into uh, the, the civil law book of the United States of America. That won't work very well, uh, and it's not what the New Testament has demonstrated for us that we are supposed to do as Christians. Again, not saying that we shouldn't vote for good God-honoring laws. We should, absolutely. Uh, but the general equity of those laws is to apply them in the church in this way. So let's close in a word of prayer.